I'm Professor Philip Sabin from the War Studies Department at King's College London. We are in St Andrews, where I'm attending a conference on air power. My main academic specialism is the analytical modelling of conflict. That includes air power, it includes ancient warfare. The thing that unites those is my interest in conflict simulation, otherwise known as wargaming. This is something that's associated with enthusiasts more often than academics. It's associated more with video gaming, like Call of Duty, more than with manual techniques such as counters on a paper map. I focus on the manual side, and I do use it very much for academic purposes. I run an MA course in which students learn how to design, how to model a conflict in war game terms. I use these techniques in my teaching of my undergraduate students. For example, when we're studying the mechanics of ancient warfare or the dynamics of campaigns in World War II, which allows the players, the students, to take command and to see some of the trade-offs and the dilemmas that face the historical protagonists. The ones that I use in my teaching focus on the dynamics of conflict. They take the form of a map, and on that map are counters, each counter representing a military unit. It could be a land force, it could be a ship, it could be planes, whatever. They're like pieces on a chessboard, only it's a much more realistic simulation than chess, which is a very abstract simulation of warfare. These war games are designed to model the practical dynamics, the capabilities of these forces in terms of movement, in terms of combat, in terms of supply. But of course, as with chess, you need players to make it work, and the players provide the command input. They're the ones who look at the situation and decide, okay, we'll attack here, we'll defend there, the enemy may do this, so therefore to counter that, we'll do the other. So it's a vehicle to experiment with the real world, or at least a simplified model of the real world, allowing people to understand some of the choices that are faced in conflict situations. In the kind of war games I use in class, there's a whole set of rules, as in the rules of chess, to model reality. But there's another very important form of wargaming, which I also do, whereby there are teams, usually in separate rooms, but there's also a control team. And the control team, if you like, are the gods. They're the umpire. They throw in wild cards, which will stress the players. For example, recently, we did a couple of war games funded by the Carnegie Foundation in order to study the dynamics of nuclear crises. In that case, the control team did what I would call perhaps satanic adjudication in the sense that we are throwing in accidents, we're throwing in misperceptions in order to test the system and to see how resilient the teams are at avoiding crisis. So we're actually purposely making things difficult for them in order that you see what might happen if everything goes wrong. It's a little bit like in a flight simulator when you're training pilots and the person operating the simulator will turn on the bad weather, will turn off the gauges, will make the systems fail. The result of those war games is very interesting because it does show what can go wrong in crisis, what misperceptions can occur. So, for instance, the dangers of cyber warfare when there's no attribution and therefore there's a temptation to use it and hope to keep it secret or to think the enemy's done it to you when maybe they haven't and to strike back and therefore a crisis starts. These are the kind of things that one can learn from war games and hopefully then learn a lesson in order to avoid such things happening in the real world. So war games are designed to save lives. 
They model capabilities of the present, and they're used very much by the military, for example, if they're about to go into a crisis or about to launch an offensive. Let's wargame it using these capabilities modeled on very much those of the real world, both ours and the opponents, and let's see what can happen. And if they're going to make mistakes, hopefully they make them in the war game rather than in real life. The other thing they can do is model capabilities for the future. It's a way of virtually trialing out systems that one might decide to build and to see whether they hold up to the real world. A very nice example of that. There was an idea a few years ago that we would build little robot miniature tanks with a machine gun on top for urban warfare. The idea being these things could go by remote control into the streets. You wouldn't put your own soldiers' lives at risk and they would be able to beat an opponent in the urban warfare environment, which is so common these days. But they played it in a war game first and the players played the other side, the locals, the insurgents, said, right, what we will do is we'll get all the street children together, we'll give them a blanket, and we'll say, go and bring me back one of these robot tanks, and I'll give you $1,000. So, of course, that was then put to the players controlling the robot tanks, and they were faced with a simple choice. There are all these children coming towards you, and they're going to be able to take your tank if you don't shoot them. Are you going to shoot them? Because there was no lives at risk on the side of the robot tanks, because they were all happily back in the control booths, they said, no, of course we can't shoot children. They could think of no answer to that response. And that was decisive in us not building the system. There's an example of how wargaming can help you think through what the opponent might do to a proposed system, which will then allow you to think, could we tackle it? And if not, what are we going to do? Should we even build this? Wargaming is being used more and more. Wargaming goes through phases, both in academia and particularly in the military. There are periods when it's out of favour, when people think, no, no, we uh, want to use our kit in practical trials in the physical world rather than just in virtual form in computers or on a map table. We're now in the opposite period when people are very much waking up to the potential of wargaming. I think part of the reason for that is because we've had such difficult times and crises and continue to have them in the world. So when you think that we know how to fight wars, people tend to think, okay, we don't need to bother with trialing war games and so on. When you've had experiences like Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and the crises, for example, with North Korea over nuclear weapons, then people think, whoa, this is a bit dangerous. Clearly, we don't know as much as we thought we do. We're not as clever as we thought we were. And therefore, wargaming needs to be used. That's one circumstance which I think makes it very useful to use wargaming. The other one is someone famously said, we've run out of money. It's time to think. We don't have enough money now. We have to make very difficult choices as to how to spend our limited defense resources. And wargaming allows you, particularly in air power because these systems are so expensive, it allows you to consider what is the most cost-effective investment, where is a capability unneeded or some refinement to it, uh, and in what areas is it absolutely vital that we have this leading cutting-edge capability because that's going to turn the tide of warfare. So wargaming is a cheap way to experiment with the real world, and if you can make the simulations higher halfway realistic, it does actually allow you to save a lot of money as well as a lot of potentially lives, either in avoiding war or in fighting it better when it comes. A real challenge for air power planners is that whereas in the Cold War they were focused essentially on deterring the Warsaw Pact 
and the Soviet Union and had a significant defense budget because that was seen as a major strategic priority. And whereas in the immediate post-Cold War years, the first two decades, let's say, after 1991, they were focused very much on peacekeeping operations, intervention operations against less than capable opponents. Now, air power has to tackle both threats. It has to deter an escalation of confrontation with Russia. But also, there are all these operations in the real world, like those against ISIS, in which it also has to engage. And that at a time when the defense budget is far, far smaller than it ever was during the Cold War. So what wargaming is going to allow us, I hope, to do is better to tackle this question of how much do we need For example, do we need manned fighter aircraft of the latest fifth generation? Is that going to be crucial in a confrontation with Russia? Are there other ways of doing this? Have we actually moved away from the world in which it is conceivable that you would have an all-out conventional clash, uh, just as in World War II, to an era in which great power competition, even head-to-head, takes the form of cyber warfare, hybrid warfare, and you avoid shooting directly at each other, but you do all sorts of things to undermine the enemy society, to undermine their politics, and so on. Sure of that and that therefore the capabilities of the Air Force shouldn't be focused so much on old-style high-tech air combat, for instance, and more on guarding against this spectrum of threats in the cyber realm, in space, and some sort of response to hybrid tactics being used by the opponent. So air power, broadly defined, doesn't just look at planes flying through the air. It's looking at this whole spectrum of threats. And wargaming, I think, is a way to think laterally and to consider where best to invest. And it's a very, very important policy choice at the moment, because in the press, the tendency is to look at how many platforms we've got, how many ships, how many planes, and so on, and how that compares to our allies and to our opponents. Actually, when you talk about real capability, the capability to do something rather than have a lot of shiny planes sitting unused on an airbase somewhere, then you're looking at other measures than just simple numbers of pieces of kit. And wargaming helps to get you from one of those to the other. Space is an increasingly vital theatre. It's been called the new high ground. So much of what we do now is dependent on space satellites, be it communications, be it navigation, be it intelligence gathering. So space very much is crucial, not only to warfare, but also to our civilian lives. And therefore, I think any defense strategy will need to focus increasingly on space. Now, that does not mean that I think wars are going to be fought in space by robots without any direct human involvement. People have been prophesying space wars for a long time. And although we do need to be careful about anti-satellite capabilities, about jamming and so on, wars, sadly, we know from very bitter recent experience, are fought by humans in the mud and in the dust of the rubble of destroyed cities on Earth. They are not fought purely by robots in space. So space is an increasingly important dimension, just like cyber, but it's only a complement to the bitter, nasty, horrible wars which take place, as we've seen so clearly in Syria, on Earth.